This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There wasn't much doubt that when Scott Pruitt was named director of the Environmental Protection Agency that many people were worried about how he would exactly try to, quote-unquote, protect the environment, given his background. While he has made some inferences about climate change, he has made moves that show that he is more of a business-first director. It gives us a good opportunity to take a look at the state of the environment right now as we head through 2018, the beginning parts of 2018. Joining us on the phone, or I should say joining us in studio, Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. He's also Director for of, of the uh, Global Environmental Institute for Global Environmental Leadership here at the school. And also joining us is Daniel Kemen, who's a Professor of Energy at the University of California at Berkeley. Eric, great seeing you again. Great good, seeing you. Good to see you, too. Happy New Year. Thank you, Dan. Great to have you with us uh, again. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So year one in the books, Dan, with Mr. Pruitt in charge, and your reaction is what? Oh, this is a, uh, an, a solid F, and we don't give out Fs very easily at universities. So it's a pretty <laughs> poor score on not only what's happened, but really the massive culture change we've seen of taking apart a, a federal apparatus that was full of scientific, technical, economic business experts and really replacing it with, in most cases, nobody, um, but in many cases, people that are just simply not qualified for the positions. And so from a position of really interesting economic and environmental leadership, uh, there's been a right turn of epic proportions. Eric? Yeah, I have to agree. I would say it's an unmitigated disaster for the natural environment and uh, for the human beings, all of us who depend on clean water, clean uh, air, non-toxic chemicals, uh, healthy food, and stable weather patterns. So on all of those fronts, there have been numerous retreats uh, and, and essentially assaults on the natural environment, and it's all in the name of advancing business interests. Uh, and that's one uh, sort of one thing we might think about going forward. There's been massive uh, deletions, uh, delays, et cetera, about of regulations. And yeah. as uh, as Dan said, that's basically uh, you know at the at the behest of Scott Pruitt, but others in the in the cabinet and Interior and the other uh, the other appointments. So we really have uh, uh, it's really uh, difficult to see a bright side, except that um, it might be the case that the citizens of the United States will start to see this issue uh, more clearly as, uh, as we start to see problems that develop when you are retracting all of these regulations. And we've already started to see some of those problems. And, um, and also, I think businesses who are taking a lead in many cases, their leadership on these issues, as we've talked about on the show before, has shifted from the federal government to the state level, where a lot of states are becoming active. Colleges and universities are, are active on climate change and other issues. Um, and I think businesses, too, uh, who, are not in, who are not the direct beneficiaries, such as uh, oil and gas companies and those related to them, mm -hmm. are also, I think, going to start to pick up the uh, pick up the ball. You mentioned at the top, 4% uh, of retail sales coming from Amazon, for example. So yeah. what if Amazon, which I think is very possible, could say, would say, you know, we're going we're gonna to start to play a major role in this. We're going to take sustainability more seriously than we have so far. 
and how could we start to move the envelope uh, on different ways. And that's been done in the past by Walmart, other companies. And I think uh, that's the positive side of this. We can go down a litany of very bad things that happened in 2017 under this administration. But I think it's important to think about what will be the reaction to that. Well, I think, Dan, one of the things playing off of something that Eric just said is that it feels like we're at a time right now where not only could businesses have this impact, but states as well. And, you know, it's the philosophy of, well, if the federal government's not going to do it, let's take this into our own hands. Well, that's certainly right. I mean, so here in California, this has been job one for not just the last several years, but even before President Obama was elected. So California has a climate plan in place, which is, if not the best, one of the best in the world in terms of the targets, the goals we have, which is this 80% decarbonization or more by 2050. But the critical features and the the actions where it gets interesting for business are how we get there. And so California has one of, if not the highest, standard for clean energy in the country. We are on a path to be 33% renewable power by 2020, and and each state defines renewables differently. In California, we don't include large hydro or nuclear, so this is just solar, wind, geothermal, biomass, and biomass if it can be done sustainably. California has a cap-and-trade market, which is working well, arguably better than the European market right now. And I think the feature that might be most interesting here is that California, well before the Paris conference, launched something called the Under 2 MOU, the Under 2 Degree Memorandum of Understanding, which now has well over 200 subnational members around the world. And it's basically a voluntary commitment, as, of course, is the Paris Accord. Um, but it's one where cities, states, cantons, provinces all commit. And at last count, that under two MOU uh, coalition, which California now and Baden-Württemberg and Germany co-chair, is more than 40% of the global economy. And so we are seeing solar energy manufacturing that used to really only be seen in United States, Germany, and China, now spreading to other countries, Malaysia, Taiwan, many others are getting into the game. Windmill production is up around the world. Uh, China is still the leader, but Germany, Denmark, India with Suzlon, there's many, many companies that are all taking advantage. And I think that the biggest shift we are seeing in the place where this, this sort of what are the opportunities for states and businesses to play a big lead role is that this clean energy push is producing power cheaper than any of the fossil fuel options today. We've seen solar projects come in at 1.7 cents per kilowatt hour. We've seen wind projects come in at just about that same price. We're seeing battery production in Malaysia, in Jordan, in China, in New York State, Washington State, California, Texas, Ohio. There really is a huge economic upside that the federal government, unfortunately, right now is really abdicated on, even though many of these programs started in the last several years with really important efforts like the ARPA-E program, the Department of Energy's Advanced Projects Research Energy for Agency, um, Agency, the clean power plan that, of course, Mr. Trump has stepped away from. Even the 1703, the loan guarantee program that got incredible bad press because of one bad investment, Solyndra, that made money for the federal government. I mean, that not just was a good subsidy, but it actually returned more than was paid in. And so we're seeing across the board the upside of clean energy. And it's just a shame that the federal government is ceding all of those business opportunities and jobs to other countries, states, jurisdictions around the world, 
with their disinterest in what is the future. Yeah, again, I agree with almost everything that was said there. Just one example to add on the other side of the Solyndra, uh, uh, the, the Solyndra debacle is Tesla. And there was a uh, Tesla repaid the loan that was given to it to develop uh, the new cars at record pace, and it's a, it's now a leader. And we and, and so there are some areas in which I think the United States is still going to be able to maintain some lead. But I agree fully with Dan, and I think this is going to become increasingly apparent to people that we're sac- the federal government by its turn away from clean energy options is really sacrificing the future. So the big question to me is. Uh, will there be enough of a bump in the economy that is given by the massive deregulation that's followed, mm-hmm. as well as some of the tax policies that only in the short term, I don't think anybody is really predicting a long-term growth surge from those policies. The danger is that there will be a short enough bump in the uh, economy, stock market, jobs, et cetera, that most people will just say, well, I'm not going to worry about the environment. Right, because right. traditionally, the truth is that if you ask people, well, here are 10 issues, uh, which do you think are the highest issues of uh, salience for you when you're going to vote, or buy a product even, the, the environment's usually number 10. It's usually yeah. pretty far down there. So I think the question is, are, are we going to start to see with a lot of the publicity of the constant rollbacks and and I think then you're going to see with uh, EPA being crushed with five, 700 people have left. It's EPA yeah. numbers are now at the lowest that they've ever been since the Reagan administration. Uh, are you going to start to see really serious problems that are going to inevitably come from that? And will that start to change the culture the other direction? Uh, that's the that's kind of the bigger question here. And uh, I think the hope is that you're not going to the, the danger is that we're going to follow the what you know the the model of Russia, which is a really bad model if you look at the economic long term. Yeah. It's really great to like uh, drill in the Arctic, uh, start uh, mining and drilling in, 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 in protected federal lands, et cetera, for very short bump uh, returns for fossil fuel companies, et cetera. And that might give you like a couple, it, but it's a curse, really. You know, it's it's the it's the oil or fossil fuel curse. And if you want to see what the future would look like, you don't want to be Russia. That's what Russia depends entirely on now. And the economy there is very bleak, and the futures there are very bleak. So, I think that's why you're. You know, I don't think that that's going to happen in the United States. The question is just how fast are we going to turn around? to embrace some of these opportunities. And as Dan says, uh, the competition is really against companies in Europe, uh, China, India, other places, and whether uh, U.S. companies or U.S.-based companies are going to be able to be in that game and stay in competition with those uh, with companies in those other countries. Well, Dan, you, you both mentioned about the, the the lower number of employees at the uh, uh, at the EPA, some 700 out of I guess 14,000 or so, and a lot of people say, well, that's not a lot. I mean, maybe you're you're trimming the fat to a degree. But that being said, from a functionality perspective, when you're talking about some of these people potentially being scientists and providing a lot of this information, it's a significant point to, to, to mention and to really look into. Well, it really is, and, and it's, it's actually much more than the 700 so far. So I, I worked at the State Department um, most recently as the science envoy, and I resigned in protest over Mr. Trump's policies. But the, the joke, and it was a sad joke, was that anyone who needed office space in, in, the, in the State Department building, which is generally jammed for space, could pick and choose their offices because so many of them were empty. The so-called um, 
policy level floor was largely empty, um, and that's just in um, at State Department and, and EPA, as you mentioned. And we're seeing the same thing at the Department of Energy, and the place where I did most of my work, which is actually in conjunction with the U.S. embassies and the ambassadors around the world, um, those offices are also incredibly unfilled, and so. I would say we are already at a uh, dangerously negligent place in terms of lack of capacity to engage, whether it's you know, a topic which unfortunately is ideological today, although it shouldn't be like um, climate, but even in terms of basic function, in terms of playing a role to open opportunities for U.S. businesses. And so my uh, position was focused on Africa and the Middle East. And I observed and watched and went to meetings with ambassadors from other countries that were really looking for business opportunities, be it in clean energy and, and, and automotive manufacturing, in the clean tech sectors, in all of the countries I worked in. And the U.S. is simply playing a vastly diminished role in that area. And you can see it. I just came back from meetings in Kenya, which is one of those clean tech leaders. Kenya right. is actually ground zero for clean off-grid energy enabled by pay-as-you-go software on your phone, um, software that was really started in the United States under this ARPA-E program the Department of Energy worked on and at the World Bank. And the U.S. is a smaller and smaller player compared to not only the traditional other players, Britain, Germany, and others, but Chile, Argentina, Mexico, they're all playing hugely expanded roles and they're reaping not only the economic benefits, but also just the business leadership benefits of filling those vacant offices, if you will, at the currently empty U.S. agencies. Yeah, I think uh, Dan makes a good point. It's interesting. I just got back from Kenya, too. I don't know if you were at the same conference, but there was a new conference this year that they held at the U.N. environment. And the headquarters are in Nairobi. And for the first time, and I think this will be a repeating uh, pattern, they had a conference that was not only about science and policy, but they added business. And not to put a lot of weight on the U.N. aspect of it, but I think Dan's point is very well taken that we're in a – we have to remember we're an international – we're in an international business environment, and there's lots of uh, positive plays that businesses who are in these uh, fields are going to be able to make uh, throughout the world. Uh, and hopefully the policies will change in the U.S. quickly. But I, I also wanted to shift and make one other point, which I think is important and shows the total the, the irrationality of what's happening in the Trump administration. And that is, it's not only a, an ideological, anti-regulatory bias that I think is, doesn't stand the test of cost-benefit analysis, et cetera, mm -hmm. of a standard economic cost-benefit analysis. It's also anti-science. It is simply, yeah. there have been reversals where there are studies that show particular pesticide is dangerous and toxic, and there's a, a lot of science behind that, and it's just repealed. Uh, there's a study, one example that was a notorious example is just before the hurricane hit Houston, the huge hurricane that hit Houston, the, uh, the uh, Trump administration reversed a flooding directive about federal infrastructure, right. yeah. which yeah. was just denial that there's any problem of rising sea levels. Well, anyone that lives on any coast in the United States at this point is appreciating that that is just a anti-scientific uh, uh, policy that doesn't make any sense. So there's a lot of those. There, there's a uh, with withdrawal of off door, offshore drilling requirements. So used to, the new requirement after the uh, BP Deepwater Horizon blew up 
was that you had a third party party auditor about safety to make sure you didn't have blowouts, et cetera. That's just repealed. So that's a kind of just irrational uh, anti-scientific policies that I think just it doesn't take a lot of a lot of uh, analysis to figure out that if you're just going to jettison scientific analysis when you're thinking about what the right regulatory framework is, you're going to get the answers wrong, and the assumptions that you're making are ideologically driven and are and are problematic. And my my faith is that you're going to have Jack graduate. There's going to be a pushback on that, right? And that, we, and that science, the businesses understand that science makes sense, and you have to follow it in terms of your long-term uh, planning. And my faith is that eventually we're going to get back to rationality. Also, at the federal government, it's just going to our system takes a few years before you <laughs> before you get that chance. And again, you know, you don't. You know, we'll, we'll see whether the United States uh, is able to, as a as a as a country, its citizens, its businesses, its nonprofit groups, et cetera, whether they're going to get it and and change course, or it's possible that you just cede leadership to other countries, which would be, of course, very sad for us. Well, Dan, I mean, the the question, I guess, when you come off of the move to, to back out of the Paris Accord is that the fact that you had almost universal acceptance you know, that, that this was something that needed to be done. And a lot of people have, have wondered uh, what the impact would be of the United States not being in the Paris Accord. I'll ask you that. What is the impact of the U.S. not being a part of this? Well, it's a really interesting question because the history of these climate accords, the Kyoto Accord that we never really signed on to and never went anywhere, um, the efforts around the Copenhagen one that was, that was a mess, and then this Paris great success, is that for a long time, the Europeans largely carried the political lead in this process. But Paris became a success largely because the U.S. and China decided that instead of this very U.N.-like, a very large negotiation, 190-some-odd countries, that the U.S. and China would essentially recognize that they were the G2, if you will, of energy and pollution. Mm -hmm. U.S. and China at that point were about 40 percent of global energy production, um, ener sorry, energy, energy use, about 40 percent of global pollution. And a deal that was acceptable to U.S. and China would uh, just move things along much faster. And so in 2014, U.S. and China um, did such a deal at the APEC summit. And that was the really watershed moment where uh, the U.S. and China signed a very unusual deal. It was asymmetric. The U.S. and China agreed to do different things by different years. Uh, and what came out of that was a process where lots of countries said, all right, I will focus on what I can do. If I'm a country with big waterways and estuaries like Bangladesh, they would focus on mangrove protection. If you had rainforest, rainforest conservation, clean energy in Kenya, in Chile, in Argentina, in Mexico. And so it became a big tent, kind of the, the diversity that was kind of the hallmark of the Obama administration really carried over. And the Paris Accord was a success because everyone found their role. Mm -hmm. So what's happened with the U.S. pulling out, and you, you, you said the near universal agreement. Well, the irony is that for a while the only three holdouts right. were Nicaragua, Syria, and United States. And I worked in Nicaragua for years. They held out for a while because they wanted a stronger agreement um, because they're already a very clean energy leader. They signed on. And then ironically, even Syria, which has a lot to be accountable for, yeah. um, signed on. And so it's actually 
it's just the U.S. that's a holdout. And so what you've been hearing from Eric and myself about this push to clean energy, the jobs benefits of doing so, the regional leadership and the stability of sharing grids across borders like we're seeing in Central America and East Africa, all of that has become a business and clean energy together process. And so the biggest issue of the U.S. not being a leader is a loss of research and development capacity for future years on the first point. The second one is harming U.S. businesses that could be big players. And the third one is simply ceding more and more geopolitical power away from the U.S. because the rest of the world is moving on with this. And whether we get to the climate goal we want or not is a big question. But the biggest loser clearly today is U.S. political leadership and business, not the overall Paris process, which is moving forward um, and has lots of complex bumps in the road, but it is a process that is moving ahead, and we're seeing country after country basically signing up to play the environment and business role that suits them best. And so the U.S. is the loser in the U.S.'s own action. But that that also plays into just the general overall feeling right now between, let's say, the European Union and the United States, as we've seen in some of the meetings that have occurred in the last few months. Well, that's right. So I came back from a series of energy and climate meetings. I actually wasn't at the same one that Eric was at in Kenya. I was at a, a different one in Europe at that same time. Um, but they are, when the U.S. wasn't a leader five, uh, five so it's a 10 years ago, um, the position was, well, the U.S. should come around. This time, it's a, different set, it's a different sense. And it's that we're tired of waiting for you, the United States, to play the role and to really take the opportunities that you're being presented. And so what you're seeing now are stronger regional agreements and efforts to work on clean trade deals where U.S. companies are cut out because the government needs to indicate that there's going to be a, a push ahead in this area. And so we're seeing everything from new initiatives to build, um, to research and build batteries in, um, in southern Europe to efforts to become wind and solar energy research leaders in Latin America, efforts in southern Africa to be leaders in smart, sustainable, smaller-scale hydro and solar. All of those efforts are ones where the global environment business nexus is really pushing ahead. And the frustration that the Europeans are expressing with the U.S.'s inability to play its former powerful role is, I would say, one of the long-term negatives that even when we get a change of administration is going to take some time to reverse because being trusted again in those global dialogues takes some time, even if we can put good people back in place fairly quickly. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I generally agree with the uh, analysis of the problems at the U.S. federal government level. I guess I think there's a little bit more room for optimism in terms of thinking about a changing structure of what I would call the global environmental governance regime looks like. And so I think the traditional idea had been uh, all the countries have to get together in something like a Kyoto kind of style agreement mm -hmm. and then agree on the rules and then impose them from a top down. The huge breakthrough that I see in the Paris Agreement is, A, every country adjoined until the U.S. is now starting to not join. And by the way, uh, it's only an intention not to leave. You know, the, the U.S. can't formally leave the Paris Agreement until after the next presidential election. Right. So the next yep. presidential election is in part going to be a referendum on that issue. But even but, but the my, my more general point is that I think there's a changing uh, global structure where 
big businesses as well as smaller business and consumers, uh, big nonprofit organizations, the Sierra Club, the World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, those kind of big players, um, and a lot of other uh, players who are not the big governments, state governments. Jerry Brown is being yeah. uh, celebrated everywhere. So U.S. Uh, US diplomats that are, are holding the Trump line are going places, including the EPA administrator, and people are just laughing. And, and and they're they're an embarrassment. But I think that they that's a, that's I think also a, a check on what's going to happen here. This is not something where I think this is going to be exported and other countries are going to follow the Trump administration in this respect. They may be following it in nationalistic uh, rhetoric and kind of strategies of that kind. But I don't think they're going to be following in this in this respect. And so if you take a broader view and you look at what kinds of roles can all these can businesses play, NGOs play, citizens can still play a role in supporting these groups. Mm -hmm. A lot of environmental groups are going to try to hold the line against some of the regulatory changes. But I think that's where there's a lot of optimism that you can still see going forward that a lot of people are going to say, you know, you have to do it yourself. You can't just depend on the UN to somehow solve right. this problem or give right. it to the experts. Everyone has to get involved in, in it from businesses, consumers, citizens, et cetera. And I think that's the that's maybe the silver lining here is that you see how bad it can be if you just rely on the top and then sure. and you yeah. realize that there can be a lot of solutions driven from the bottom up. And and the last point is the businesses and NGOs have a role to play in the Paris Agreement, and that may be strengthened by this re recognition that the U.S. government is no longer there. That doesn't mean you have you, know, you have coalitions of U.S. businesses there. Sure. You have coalitions yeah. of universities and colleges that have said we're playing. States, et cetera, uh, cities are organized. So that's where I think there still is a lot of hope. And uh, I think it's quite possible, as Michael Bloomberg has been arguing, that the U.S. will comply to the first Paris Agreement uh, levels even though the Trump administration's against it. Just because you have so many states, cities, right. local governments, yep. businesses making yep. long-term contracts, uh, and that would be quite an interesting uh, uh, occurrence <laughs> for 2018. Great having you both with us. Uh, Eric, great seeing you again, as always. Dan, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank you, sir. That's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Eric Orts of the Wharton School, Daniel Kemen of the University of California at Berkeley. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.